I think that with regards to the constitutionality of the individual mandate, um, I think this court has pointed out that there is a, a non-frivolous argument uh, against the individual mandate. It's uh, unusual for Congress to require everyone to do something, much less to go out and purchase a product. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi. We're glad you could listen today. Uh, this is uh, I'm coming to you from Massachusetts, and uh, Craig? I'm coming to you from sunny Southern California, where it was 90 degrees this weekend, Bob. Um, I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a blog out called How to Get Sued. And, Bob, we need to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. And I know you write a blog or two. I write a blog called Law Sites, which I'm happy to say was just included in the uh, ABA Blog 100 for the third time uh, running. So I'm I'm very proud of that. And also a blog called Media Law. Congratulations. Craig, a, a mate, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just said congratulations. Thank you very much. A major blow to the national health care law this week uh, when uh, U.S. District Judge Henry E. Hudson in Richmond, Virginia, ruled that a central provision of the national health care law, the so-called Affordable Care Act, uh, was unconstitutional. The law, of course, requires Americans to have health insurance or pay a penalty if they do not. In addition, Hudson denied uh, Virginia's request to strike down the law while his uh, ruling is appealed by the Obama administration. And today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at this recent ruling and its impact. So joining us today is healthcare law expert Professor Timothy Yost from the Washington and Lee University School of Law. He is the co-author of a case book, Health Law, used widely throughout the United States in teaching health law. He's also written numerous articles and book chapters on healthcare regulation as well as comparative health law and policy, and has lectured on health law topics throughout the world. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Tim. Thank you. Good to be here. And joining us next is a returning guest, uh, Adam Winkler, a constitutional law specialist from UCLA Law School. Uh, where his scholarship has touched on a variety of issues, including the right to bear arms, voting rights, corporate free speech rights, and judicial independence. Adam also writes for The Daily Beast and The Huffington Post, where you can find his piece on today's topic entitled, The Courts, Not Congress, Are the Biggest Threat to Obama's Agenda. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer, Adam Winkler. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Tim and Adam, let's talk about uh, about this health care reform law and and what the judge in in Virginia has considered unconstitutional. And, and Tim, let me just start with you, and, and and perhaps you could give us your your perspective on on what Judge Hudson uh, decided in Virginia. Well, I think it's important to keep this decision in perspective. This is the fifteenth case now that is ruled on the health care reform law. Uh, the first 14 went toward went to the government, so it is now uh, 14 to 1. Twelve of those cases dismissed lawsuits. Two of them ruled on demerits that the statute was was constitutional. So this is the 
the first decision now to find part of the statute unconstitutional. The other thing is that uh, Judge Hudson's ruling is very narrow. He only struck one provision of the hundreds of provisions in the statute from the statute. It is an important provision. Uh, it's going to be more difficult to implement some of the other provisions of the statute without this one, but it certainly is not a death blow to the to the Affordable Care Act. Implementation is continuing at the state and the national level, and uh, without the uh, the minimum essential coverage requirement, which essentially uh, requires people who can afford health insurance and who do not have a religious objection to it, and uh, who meet several other requirements to buy a very basic health insurance policy. Uh, without that in there, health insurance is going to be more expensive for everybody else, and there's going to be a lot more costs transferred to the taxpayer and to employers and to people who do purchase health insurance. But uh, this is not by any means a fatal blow to the statute. And, and once again, uh, we're a long way from the end on this. Uh, this is now one out of 15 decisions that's gone against the statute and is by no means the final word, as, Justice, as Judge Hudson realized. What, what is it that he's striking down as unconstitutional? Why is it that he's claiming that, uh, or at least uh, deciding that the, the provisions are unconstitutional? Where did he, where, where did he rest his, his reasoning? Well, uh, what the judge held was that uh, there isn't any basis in the enumerated powers for Congress to adopt a requirement that uh, individuals purchase health insurance. Uh, he read the Commerce Clause to require to to limit the power of Congress to regulating economic activity. The the term economic activity appears nowhere in the Commerce Clause, but uh, it has been mentioned in earlier cases, which have, have in fact, concerned regulation of economic activity. And so um, he essentially held that, well, number one, that um, under the Commerce Clause, Congress can only regulate economic activity and cannot require people to engage in commerce. And number two, uh, he read the necessary and proper clause out of the Constitution, holding that it added nothing to the um, to the Commerce Clause power of Congress, um, and therefore had no importance to this case. And uh, and then third, held that. Uh, the provision was not justifiable as a, as a as a tax either; could not be supported under Congress's taxing power, and therefore he held that Congress had no power, no authority to uh, adopt this provision under the Constitution. Uh, Adam Winkler, let's let's bring you into the conversation. In in Massachusetts, which which happens to be where I am, uh, of course, uh, we've had a health care law that some say this this federal law was was modeled on. And just this week, the uh, governor of Massachusetts issued a report saying that that under the Massachusetts law, ninety eight percent of residents now have health insurance. Uh, if if this uh, if 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 the if Judge Hudson's ruling were were to stand. Uh, What's what's your opinion on the effect this would have on, on the national health law, and, and do you think his ruling is correct? Well, I, I've heard it said that if his ruling is upheld ultimately by the uh, United States Supreme Court and the so-called individual mandate uh, is um, 
severed from the law and declared unconstitutional, that it could possibly bankrupt uh, all the major insurance companies because other provisions of the law that are still in effect uh, require every insurance company to accept an applicant regardless of pre-existing conditions. And what that means is that uh, if I'm healthy, I don't have to go get insurance. And the moment I get diagnosed with a serious illness like cancer or whatnot, it's going to cost me a lot of money, I can then go get uh, insurance and the insurance company can't turn me down for my pre-existing condition. Uh, The health insurance companies recognize that uh, absolutely essential to keeping those companies viable as insurers is uh, making sure that uh, people who are healthy are paying into the system. Uh, And so they're supporting the system with their funds rather than waiting until they're unhealthy uh, and, and then can get in through uh, uh, an insurance company's inability to turn them away because of pre-existing conditions. But that's about the economics of the insurance uh, industry, and so that's what I've heard said, although I won't claim to be any great expert on uh, insurance regulation. That's probably uh, uh, Professor Jouse's uh, uh, expertise more than mine. I think that with regards to the constitutionality of the individual mandate, um, I think this court has pointed out that there is a, a non-frivolous argument uh, against the individual mandate. It's uh, unusual for Congress to require everyone to do something, much less to go out and purchase a product. I say it's unusual, but I, I, it's not unprecedented. And in fact, if you believe the judges should stick to the original intent of the framers, uh, I think there's a really good argument that this law should be upheld. The framers had an individual mandate of their own in the 1792 Militia Acts. Um, these laws required that uh, men go and outfit themselves with military-style firearms so that they could serve in the militia. And if you didn't own a gun or were satisfied with your hunting shotgun uh, that wasn't appropriate for military use, too bad. You had to go out and buy one. So the idea that uh, the Founding Fathers would not stand for government forcing you to purchase a product doesn't seem to have much historical basis. That's fascinating. I, I, I hadn't hadn't heard that one. I I, uh, I can think of other kinds of requirements that uh, might be constitutional under this law, and also and also I think health healthcare really is unique. Um, that in in that it has uh, characteristics that don't pertain to other products. Uh, I you know I've heard it said that well if they can make you do this they can make you buy broccoli. Uh, or make you eat asparagus, but um, there was a, a brief filed in the Florida case by 35 economists, including three Nobel Prize winners, including Ken Arrow, who is the founder of health economics, uh, in which they make the point that, that health care is really different from other products uh, and that, um, that, that a precedent that would say that the government could make you purchase health insurance is really a, a precedent for nothing else. But uh, it, it is interesting that uh, I suppose guns also then fall into that category. And and for those critics of the law who are saying, uh, and even the judge in Monday's ruling uh, uh, articulated this concern, which is that uh, there are no limits to Congress's power if we say that Congress can force you to purchase a product on the open market. They can force you to go eat nutritious food or only buy organic, perhaps. Um, and uh, I think that that's uh, uh, I think that's a real concern for proponents of this law, because the court has, in previous cases, like the Lopez case, um, uh, back in 1995, expressed grave concerns with an argument that does not show what the limits, logically and theoretically, are of congressional power. And if, we, if you can't provide a way to distinguish health care, uh, I think that uh, proponents of this law are going to have a real difficult time in the United States Supreme Court if they can't figure out some uh, limiting principle. 
Then again, I do think that uh, it's a little bit over-exaggerated, and the parade of horribles that the government's going to require us to go buy our vegetables uh, and, and eat them uh, twice a day or something like that. Um, we are talking only about Congress's power. Congress's power is limited uh, under the Constitution, but state governments are not so limited. And currently, under the general police powers of the states, 50 of our states could pass a law today requiring you to go buy uh, health insurance or requiring you to go buy vegetables, I guess, uh, if that's true. So this idea that the governmental power would be unbridled uh, is kind of silly in some ways because government has this power at the state level. And, of course, no state is exercising that power to require you to go eat vegetables. And Massachusetts has exercised the power to require people to purchase health insurance. I mean, what's and, and it appears to be working in Massachusetts. I mean, that 98% figure that I cited is yeah. pretty impressive, if it's correct. Yeah, and there's a very low level of noncompliance as well. Because for most people, it's in their interest to, to have health insurance. And of course, most Americans still get it through their jobs or, or through a public program. But what's different about health care is that, uh, and health insurance, is number one, it's, it's one product everybody at some point in their life is going to consume. Um, almost everybody uh, at some point is going to need health care. Number two, it's potentially very expensive, uh, can easily exceed the, the, the resources of, of most American families. Uh, it's also um, somewhat unpredictable. Some people are more likely to use it, need it than others, but anybody can get in an accident or have a heart attack. Um, and, uh, and, and we uh, provide it, we require hospitals to provide it in any event uh, under the, uh, the law that requires hospitals to admit people to their emergency rooms regardless of ability to pay. And every year, um, or at least in 2008, $43 billion worth of uncompensated care was paid for by the taxpayers, by employers, by uh, people who purchased health insurance um, for care for people who didn't have health insurance. Well, of course, if you can't afford it, um, that's that's a problem, uh, but under this statute, uh, tax credits are going to be made available to allow people to afford it. And then the final consideration is that health insurance, as has already been said, just won't work if only uh, unhealthy people buy it. And once we outlaw pre-existing condition exclusions and health status underwriting, um, then uh, that's conceivably all we're going to have in the market. And so there's no other product that has all of these characteristics, and therefore uh, saying that government can allow people to participate in health insurance markets is really not a precedent for anything else. Um, and of course, <laughs> independent of that is the fact that Congress wouldn't be so silly as to require people to buy asparagus, and if it did, they'd probably be voted out of office. Well, what if it gets to the point where you're actually saying that there is a particular type of a food that does prevent cancer? Uh, why isn't it that the government, if they can regulate health care, couldn't step out there and say, well, you know, this is good for you. It's public health and safety. It's going to prevent cancer and it's a miracle food. So you need to start eating it and you must buy it. Well, once again, um, that is one of the, I think, five characteristics that I mentioned. Um, if uh, the product were extraordinarily expensive, and I mean, just walk back through all the things I just said. 
uh, it's more than just it's good for you. It's, it's, well, well it's, I mean, we can we can easily go through the five things that you've identified and say, okay, well, you know, blueberries are not expensive, so that well, we've gotten past that one. And, and that's what I'm saying. Uh, that that uh, the, the the problem here is that. Because of the the high cost and unpredictability, it's a product that you need to have insurance for, uh, and therefore it's not just the pro- the fact that it's that it's uh, important or necessary. It's the fact that uh, you need to have uh, an insurance program, and every 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 developed country in the world does have um, some form of public or in a few. Uh, countries compelled private health insurance uh, because of these characteristics of health care. Um, and uh, when, you, when you put all of that together, plus the fact that we already do uh, require it to be provided um, and simply shift the cost to others, uh, again, it's, it's just a unique product. It's not simply the fact that it's important or good for you. It's all of these other characteristics that uh, together make it unique. Adam, uh, Adam, let me ask you, we, we've, we've talked about the fact that there have been other federal courts uh, that have addressed this issue and that have come out uh, differently than, than Judge Hudson did. Uh, what, what was different about this case before Judge Hudson, if, if anything? Uh, and why was it that Judge Hudson, if he, if he thought the law was unconstitutional, didn't uh, enjoin its, uh, its taking effect? Well, I think with regards to the the latter question, um, he didn't really need to uh, uh, to do much more than he's done. He knows that this is going up on appeal. He said even in his opinion that that he knows that his is not the last word, and so uh, it will be going up on appeal, and uh, the the higher courts will have the final say on the constitutionality of. Uh, this uh, individual mandate. I don't think this case was fundamentally different from the other cases. to the extent it was related to, to the extent uh, relevant to this particular ruling on, on Monday, I think there are some real issues about standing in this particular case and whether the state of Virginia properly has standing to sue and challenge this individual mandate. The basis for the standing decision earlier uh, by this court was that Virginia had passed a law saying that they have standing. Uh, but of course, uh, there's no way that uh, or no reason why a state passed state piece of legislation should control Article Three standing. So I think on appeal there will be some standing issues. Um, basically, the you know the, this law falls within the cracks of existing jurisprudence. Uh, I think there's some good arguments for the constitutionality of the individual mandate given existing precedents, but uh, uh, there are some good arguments on the other side as well, and I'm not surprised that judges are going to disagree about the constitutionality of this law. I'd be very surprised if and when this does go up to the United States Supreme Court, we don't get a very strongly divided opinion. Whether it goes 5-4 one way or 5-4 the other way, there are solid arguments uh, on both sides uh, because the law is unusual. It's so unusual for Congress to require that someone go out and purchase something. But I don't think the cases are fundamentally different. You just had judges making uh, different, having di- articulating different understandings of what the precedents require, uh, a different understanding of, for instance, whether this was really a penalty or a tax provision. How is the Obama administration reacting to this? What kind of, uh, what are we seeing? Obviously, they're appealing it, but uh, what kind of positions are is the Obama administration taking on the appeal? What can we expect to hear as arguments? Well, like I mentioned, I think we're going to see a vigorous argument about standing, whether Virginia has appropriate standing to even make the case that they're making. So I think we will see that. 
which was not uh, a subject of this particular ruling in this case, but it will be an issue on appeal. And I think the they have a very, from what I understand, it's a very coordinated effort uh, to fight uh, the challenges to the individual mandate, um, uh, headed up uh, uh, in the administration, uh, and a real coordinated effort to make strong defenses. I don't think we're going to see much different than what we've already seen. The question is whether they can get the judges on the courts of appeals, uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals in this particular case, and eventually the United States Supreme Court to agree with their arguments that uh, regulate, regulating someone's decision or not this, or indecision about buying insurance is a necessary uh, and proper way of regulating uh, the national health care market, which is clearly uh, an, uh, a very important part of the interstate uh, economy. And what about standing? If Virginia doesn't have standing, who would? Well, a, a private individual who's forced to buy insurance would easily have standing. So this will, the, the, the constitutional issue in this case is one that's appropriate for the courts to decide at some point. But as of today, no one has been required to buy insurance. The insurance, uh, Professor Joust can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that provision doesn't go into effect until 2013, if I'm, if I'm yeah, right, or 20, sometime around 2014, that. actually, 2014. and I think this is a very important point. That, uh, and, and in fact, in the cases that have been, the dozen cases that have been dismissed, I think most of those, if not all of them, have been on standing grounds. Um, and in the Florida case, uh, the court never reached the question of whether the states had standing. It simply held that, uh, some of the individual plaintiffs had standing and, and therefore it would proceed to hear the case. Uh, and uh, in Virginia, it did really come up with quite a novel argument that a state could create standing in itself by uh, adopting a statute uh, outlawing a federal law. Um, so I think that it is going to be an important question. Um, in the individual cases, uh, what uh, a number of the courts have held is that, uh, look, nothing happens here until 2014. Who knows what your situation is going to be in 2014? You may well have insurance then. Uh, and so uh, let's wait and see. Um, but other courts have said, uh, courts I think that were particularly eager to reach the question on the merits, have said, well, I guess people have to start planning ahead now to make sure they can afford insurance in 2014, and therefore it does have an immediate effect on them. Uh, so on that basis, uh, some of the courts have uh, found standing. Of course, uh, if, if the... Um, if the court does reject the case on uh, the standing grounds, that simply puts the question off for another several years because certainly when tax time, filing time comes around in 2015, there will be a number of Americans who will uh, owe this penalty and then they will have standing to contest it, although they'll probably have to come up through the tax court or the court of claims or however one contests a, a tax penalty. Yeah, in fact, there are, there's federal legislation that severely restricts your ability to go to court to challenge a tax uh, payment, a tax claim uh, uh, from the IRS, uh, and you have to go through the appropriate administrative procedures. So uh, even the individual who will have ultimately standing has to do a, a whole bunch of procedural things other than just go to court and file suit. Well, gentlemen, we need to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk more with healthcare law experts Timothy of the Washington Lee University School of Law and Adam, who's a constitutional law specialist from UCLA School of Law. Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. 
Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust Advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Uh, This is Bob Ambrogi. Uh, J. Craig Williams and I are joined by... Our guests, a healthcare law expert, Professor Timothy Jost from the Washington and Lee University School of Law, and also Adam Winkler, constitutional law uh, scholar and uh, blogger and and commentator. And uh, and Adam, I wanted to ask you about the blog post uh, you you wrote this week on the Huffington Post. Uh, you uh, you referring to Judge Hudson's case uh, decision. You talked about uh, the fact, well, the, the title of your post is The Courts, Not Congress, Are the Biggest Threat to Obama's Agenda. Uh, tell us what you meant by that. Well, health care is a good example of why the courts and not, say, the new Republican majority in the House are such big threats to the president's agenda. Republicans ran in November promising to repeal or defund what they call Obamacare. But no such legislation is going to make it through the, through the Senate, which is still controlled by Democrats. And even if a law undermining health care somehow managed to get through the Senate, Obama would certainly veto it. So that's just saber-rattling in Congress. You're not going to get a legislative repeal or uh, any serious legislation uh, that uh, that hurts uh, the implementation of the health care reform law. But the president, of course, can't veto decisions of the federal courts, which are currently dominated by uh, conservatives or Republican appointees. Uh, and uh, one of the things I point out in my post is that this also highlights uh, a certain failure by the administration to fill up the federal judgeships that are empty. Nearly one in eight federal judgeships 
sits unfilled today. And even conservative judges have been taking to the airwaves to bemoan what they're calling a crisis in the federal courts due to all these vacancies. Uh, now, that's not entirely Obama's fault. Republicans in the Senate have put holds on even non-controversial nominees. Um, but recall when Democrats tried to obstruct some Bush nominees a few years ago, Republicans prepared what they called the nuclear option. They were going to end the filibuster. Um, if Obama wants to fill up these seats on the federal bench, he and the Democrats may have to begin playing a similar game of hardball. Well, how is it his fault at all? I mean, he he hasn't been uh, withholding uh, nominations. Uh, the, the nominations have just been uh, uh, sitting and in, in, in not moving on Capitol Hill. Well, first of all, I think he has been relatively slow at nominating judges. Uh, but I think it's also a matter of whether you make something a priority and whether you push it. And what I've heard from people in Washington is that you know, Congress responds in, uh, largely to the incentives that the president gives them. If the president calls and says, hey, look, this is something that's really absolutely essential for me. I want you to make this happen. Uh, they put more of their own time and effort making it happen. They want the president's support come the next uh, re-election, uh, si- next election cycle, and they want him out there helping him out. And what I hear is that uh, they have not made, uh, the administration has not made judicial nominations um, a, a priority, and they have not pushed for it. They were really pushing for health care and the health care reform law, and that's the reason why it got passed. Uh, When the president leads the charge and pushes for something to happen, it's easier for something to happen. Uh, And the demo and President Obama, from what I hear, is telling he he doesn't want to eliminate the filibuster. I think he genuinely believes that the proper way to govern is to bring everybody on board, uh, and he's willing to sacrifice uh, uh, some of the policy agenda, perhaps, so that. politics can happen in what he thinks is the right way. Um, but that's, he's probably uh, certainly discovering in Washington um, uh, that the uh, opposition party never seems to agree, uh, and that if you're not playing hardball with them and enforcing their hand, uh, they're going to try to obstruct as much as possible. And I think we're going to see more of that in the next two years. I absolutely agree with Adam on this one. I think that uh, President Obama has been very slow in making nominations and very um, um, unassertive in trying to get them through the Senate, which of course, uh, in which of course the Republicans have not been cooperating. Um, but I think that's been one of my biggest disappointments with his presidency is uh, his um, lack of initiative in trying to uh, get some of these places filled in the judiciary because uh, the judiciary is, I think, increasingly important in um, in monitoring and, and slowing down the agenda of the Obama administration. Well, well quickly then, where, where lies the future of this health care law? Is it in the courts or is it in, in Congress, Tim? Uh, well, this is the only provision of the uh, statute that I think has been seriously challenged. Um, there have been lots of challenges brought to lots of provisions of uh, the statute, uh, and some of the, some of the challenges quite bizarre. Um, and the courts have been throwing them out right and left. And I think it's important to realize that Judge Vincent down in Florida, who's hearing oral arguments today on the twenty state challenge throughout five of the seven counts in uh, in the case that uh, was brought by the by Florida and the other attorney general um, and uh, and and only left two in place uh, and the other one uh, which has to do with the expansion of Medicaid he expressed a great deal of skepticism about so there's really this one provision of the statute that is being seriously challenged 
Um, and I think it will ultimately be upheld. But if it isn't, as I said at the beginning of, of, of our discussion, uh, it's not the end of the health care bill. It's just going to make it uh, a bit more difficult to uh, implement, and it's going to make health care a lot more expensive. Yeah, and I think this provision itself uh, is going to head its way up to the United States Supreme Court eventually, uh, that barring any uh, uh, strong procedural objections by the Court of Appeals and by the Supreme Court itself, then I think that they'll uh, eventually rule on the constitutionality of this individual mandate. And if it goes to the Supreme Court, um, I don't predict uh, a hopeful outcome, although I think that there's a good argument to defend the constitutionality of the law. The court is divided with four conservatives and four liberals, with Kennedy being the swing vote uh, on most issues. And both the Rehnquist and the Roberts Court now have issued uh, several major rulings uh, limiting the scope of federal power. And Kennedy has generally sided with the conservatives in these cases, limiting federal power. Um, so uh, a lot of libertarians who are opposed to this individual mandate count Justice Kennedy uh, as one of them. Uh, I don't know whether that's absolutely accurate or not, although the voting record that he has is pretty libertarian. Um, and so, uh, as everything uh, these days, when it goes to the Supreme Court, it's a matter of Justice Kennedy's vote. Uh, and uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be betting my house on Justice Kennedy voting to uphold the individual mandate. I, I guess I would uh, have a different perspective on that. Um... If you look at um, commerce power cases and necessary and proper cases in recent years, and, and I, I think Adam knows this area better than I do, but um, uh, in the in the Rage case, uh, Justice Scalia wrote a strong concurring opinion, and Justice Thomas was uh, the only member of the court who's still there who dissented. Um, that's the medical medical marijuana case uh, in the. Uh, partial birth abortion case in which the court said that um, uh, Congress had the power under the Commerce power to regulate medical practice. Um, most of the conservative justices uh, supported that decision. Uh, and in the Comstock case, uh, again, um, I think um, six of the justices voted uh, for an expansive reading of the Necessary and Proper Clause. So it's certainly very possible that uh, the conservative members of the court will um, decide to vote against constitutionality of the statute. But I think Thomas is the only absolutely certain vote um, as a negative on this. And uh, I, I would not be surprised if uh, more than five justices voted for constitutionality. Well, gentlemen, it's time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts. We've reached the end of our program. So if you could please uh, just give, well, actually just give us your contact information since we're uh, just about out of time because we don't have uh, any time left for uh, your final thoughts. Uh, mine is J-O-S-T-T at W-L-U dot E-D-U. Yeah, and this is Adam Winkler, and you can find me uh, through a simple Google search and get my website, or you can uh, send me an email, which also connects you to my email address. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Adam Winkler. Great. Well, thank you very much for participating today. For our listeners, remember, you can get all CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts. And you can go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. And Craig, all of our programs are also on iTunes in the uh, podcast library there. And uh, let me just uh, add my thanks to our guests for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, really interesting discussion, and uh, we'll all be watching this issue with a lot of interest going forward. Uh, we'll be back next week. 
to discuss another great legal topic. Yes, and, and thank you very much, Tim and Adam, for being on the show. We'll see you again next week, Bob. Take care. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.